This is a production of Cornell University. Well, uh, thanks everybody, our, our live attendees who are hanging in there in the spring for, for tuning in. This is episode 17, the Cornell Turf Show. Fastest 30 minutes in turf. Uh, today's guest, Dr. Andy McNitt of Penn State University. Uh, and who knows what we'll talk about today. You know, we, we, uh, we might go through a bunch of different topics. We'll see, maybe we'll get a little debate here between Dr. Rossi and Dr. McNitt. But um, as always, before we get into maybe the battle of of the professors, we'll have a little bit of overview from uh, Frank to start us off here. I got no chance in the battle of professors. I think I think a Western PA uh, uh, Philadelphia guy is going to kick my butt every time. So thanks for joining us, Andy. Let me get started here. I'll take about five or six minutes to talk a little bit about the weather, ask you a couple of questions, and then I, we can have a wide ranging conversation. It's really appreciate you taking the 30 minutes. And Carl and I now know we can, in fact, bend the space-time continuum and make time, make 30 minutes feel even faster. So uh, just a big shout-out to our Cornell alum, uh, J.C. Treader, who will be part of the conversation uh, later today. And, and just, again, Andy, to shout-out to you and all the colleagues, uh, all the professional sports turf managers that got together to develop this BMP document. And I think, Carl, it's time for us to start doing tips of the week with this uh, moving forward. This is just a, such a wonderful document, uh, national document for everybody to look at uh, that I think is just really the kind of leadership that this uh, discipline needed, I, I think, to bring especially the guys who do the work, the guys and gals who are doing the work, to be viewed as professional, that there is a science behind what they do. And I, I just love the fact that this publication's out there now. So big shout out to, to you, Andy, and everybody else uh, involved. Let's talk a little bit about the weather. Um, just what you can see going on through most of our, the Northeast is it's really in a bit of a stall. And it looks like that stall is going to continue. If you look at growing degree days, except for the balmy Buffalo and uh, eerie Pennsylvania region of, north, of the Northeast, most folks are right at normal. Now, certainly South Jersey, Philly, uh, they're certainly, and Delmarva is, is still a week or two ahead. And that's where that gradient is going to be uh, above and below normal temperatures. But, you know, I woke up to 35 degrees and frost today. And I know my brother, R.D. Gaetano, told me to stick a fork in winter. But I think, uh, I, I think we're going to have to reconsider the jinxing of, of that comment. We are expected to be below normal for next week and for the foreseeable future. And again, that is leading to unabated turf growth. I mean, this is a time of year when the grass is just going to be growing like crazy. I often say you can't grow grass at this time of the year. It's time to consider another line of work. Because when you look at the, the precipitation, most of the areas that were dry in the past are now well above normal, particularly that center swath throughout the northeastern U.S., a little bit drier along the coast. But I was on Long Island, and the grasses were not looking dry down there this early this week. And again, for the foreseeable future, we're expected to be slightly above normal with precipitation as well. So again, you, you know, you're going to have good grass growing, not ideal, maybe a little bit cooler, uh, but certainly to the south of the region a little bit better. You can see soil temperatures really starting to come on, but we expect these to stall a little bit, both the combination of the rainfall uh, and increasing temperatures. And of course, you know, anybody in the sports world's got probably another piece of ground that they're taking care of. 
And you'll notice, I think the tree people would call this a mast year uh, for a particular plant, but this would be a mast year uh, for dandelions, particularly a lot of places that had to skip maybe fall control, maybe uh, turf management practices got depleted last year uh, for, for COVID and, and, and just budget reductions overall. And now you're looking at a sea of these things. We're seeing guys uh, actively try to drop the mowing height just to get the flowers off of there so you can't see them. But again, I don't uh, believe that you know a field of dandelions is going to be ideal uh, for the kinds of sport field, you know, focused, active recreational activity. When you got a lot, of, when you got a field covering these kinds of things, and we're going to talk about, you know, safety in a little bit, obviously that becomes a big issue. So, uh, you know, if you have the ability to do control, you know, control, there's two uh, uh, types of chemistries that you reach for. One is an amine formulation of 2,4-D. The other is an ester formulation of 2,4-D. And you see very little but subtle differences in these two models that are predicting the best time for spring control. Now, keep in mind, this is not the ideal time to control these plants. It's what we do because we see them now. But really, fall applications of these products, even late uh, into October, November, when you're still above 50 degrees, you can get really good deep control of these uh, broadleaf weeds with a lot of, lot of broadleaf herbicides will do the trick. But in the spring, we've embraced this uh, growing degree day model, looking at uh, base 50 growing degree day accumulation since the middle of March. And you can see the ester form is pretty good up into the Hudson Valley and into the balmy Buffalo region, but still the amine formulation taking a little bit of time to catch up. And then as soon as it starts to get warm, you wanna move away from the ester formulation because it's a little more volatile when temperatures get high. So you'll move to a more, uh, at the amine formulation, if you're gonna do spring control, I'd recommend that you keep track of this on the forecast model. Now, of course, since we're talking weeds and growth, uh, obviously crabgrass germination is still considered to be at the uh, upper end of early. For most of us, uh, you can see germination is actively occurring throughout uh, the metropolitan New York area across to where Andy's at in central PA. And then you can see the mountains take over and the elevations uh, are slowing germination a little bit, but we're starting to see pretty regular germination uh, of crabgrass throughout the region. So if you were not using pre-emergent herbicides or you start to see some plants, now's the opportunity to go out and start doing your spot treating. And we've had some success with spot treating things like Fiesta. When you get Fiesta down, uh, I'm, I, you know, not labeled for it currently. I think it might be labeled for suppression, but chelated iron uh, is not allowed under the Safe Playing Fields Act. So you're going to have to ask for an exemption. For the rest of you, obviously, that's a, a pretty reduced risk uh, option uh, for even er, for early post crabgrass control if you've not used any pre-emergence control. Now, as I welcome our guest and my longtime pal who I've had the pleasure to share in a couple of good Italian dinners with. He still owes me a dinner, I think, in Philly at some point. And I'm going to get that out of him. But I want to, I always like to have Andy on and maybe he thinks like we talk about the same things all the time. But I went back to the website, Andy, and saw the synthetic turf research sites you've got there. And boy, do you have a plethora of information. And, you know, I don't know how I missed this, but in 2000. Uh, 19, uh, you put this particular, you were involved in this particular publication that uh, really looked at what I thought was really sort of wonderful about synthetic turf. And also that this conclusion right on the first page of it 
where you say, it, you know, it requires routine maintenance, even at the level of local athletics. And this is so critical for the conversation when we talk to, you know, average uh, grounds guys who are taking care of synthetic turf surfaces, this idea that somewhat it's low maintenance. So, so here's where, you know, here's where you can decide whether you want to say anything or not, but because it was a Cornell guy, the head of the NFL Players Association came out uh, really, uh, I think, forcefully uh, and said, you know, listen, uh, we got to get rid of these synthetic surfaces, uh, grass. Uh, and I think it's things we've talked about in the past where grass gives, uh, where maybe synthetic turf doesn't. Now, that might be related to the footwear. I, I think this obviously is going to need some clarification. Uh, you know, there's a number of things that came up this past year. Oh, MetLife Stadium. This, this sort of made uh, quite a hubbub. And then recently, just the other day, uh, the Panthers announced with the arrival of the Charlotte team to play in that space to go to synthetic turf. And, you know, I, I think this is really interesting. This guy at the bottom, Mark Hart, promises to maintain uh, field quality. And I think it speaks to, uh, you know, a contact I received recently from a lawyer uh, through our sports fields website, uh, you know, defective artificial turf. And I just draw you back, Andy, as I bring you in, pal, you know, you, you know, you were involved in this and in this document are these wonderful synthetic turf uh, guidelines. And, and I'm sure you were, you were involved in this, even best management practices for these things. So, you know, I would just really make sure if you're in the sports turf business, that you're aware of this document, that you've got it on your bookshelf, that you've got a link to it. Uh, on your uh, phone or somewhere, because not only do I think does this help you, but I also think it helps you communicate these things because oftentimes grounds managers are, I think are in positions where they really got to explain and educate the people, you know, what it is they're doing. So Andy, and big thanks to Ben. I, I know there's a picture, uh, here's the photograph that Ben has in the BMP document. You know, and, and again, Andy, I'm happy to go lots of different ways, pal, but, but, you know, just some simple considerations for communities considering synthetic turf, key yeah, aspects yeah. of care and the rising chorus of concern. So let me leave it at that, pal. Look at you again and see what kind of trouble I'm in uh, now that I've, I've done my pitch. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, uh, it's Philadelphia versus, uh, New York, right? The Bronx versus Manny Young. That's right. So uh, I don't know what the Flyers versus the Bruins. Oh, let's uh, go, brother. Yeah. So um, yeah, it, obviously those BMPs were a huge team effort and I had a small part of it, but yeah, I had some input on the synthetic and some other sections uh, and it's a good start. It, it's hard to figure out where to stop with BMPs, right? Because you're just scratching the surface. Right. But you know, my one bone to pick with you is Good. every time I have you on, you have me on here, you want to talk about synthetic. I mean, this time you even fooled me. We we're supposed to talk about multi-use high school fields, and all of a sudden we're talking about synthetic again. And I guess I'm a synthetic expert because the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind, right? Um, nobody else knows anything, and I know a little bit, so suddenly I'm the big expert. Um, I mean, when it comes to synthetic turf. You know, one of the big issues when a school's thinking about putting it in is this whole water issue. And, you know, is it a pervious surface or is it impervious? And I got, you know, you got to really think about this a little bit. So we've got a natural soil high school field out there that's compacted. What do you think it's perking at, Frank? Quarter of an inch an hour, maybe, 
right? Most of that water is running off. Now I've got a synthetic turf field that's perking at 75 inches per hour, and it's called impervious, and the natural grass is called pervious. Now, the argument is made, well, all the water that goes through that synthetic ends up in the storm sewer system. But the, the question is, does it all? I mean, it has soil at the bottom of that gravel too, right? That water's gonna lay there and permeate in. And as a matter of fact, since that soil, after it goes through some freeze thaw cycles, probably is permeable. And we have, and so each individual district has its own rules. There's no statewide rules or almost aren't even countywide rules in Pennsylvania. It tends to be, you know, locale by locale and you have to make the argument. We have seen, not that many, but I've seen uh, systems go in where they made the gravel deeper, they moved the pipes up in the gravel. So now you have a retention basin and almost all the water that goes there, unless you have some gigantic storm, uh, almost all the water is going to percolate back down into the groundwater system. So why do I bring this up? School districts can save some money. If you get an architect who can argue that to the uh, local um, government and say, look, this is actually a pervious surface, you can save an awful lot of money on permitting. Anyway, so that was one of the big issues we took on with the BMPs. Um, you know, if you want to talk about synthetic turf in the NFL, so, you know, we continue to look at it and we look at these injuries and we see these numbers floating around the paper we put out two years ago that said 19% more injuries if you play on natural as opposed to synthetic in the NFL over the last six years. And that's true if, uh, you know, if 100% of the fields were synthetic versus 100% of the fields were natural. But, you know, now we're about half and half. We still, even after Carolina changes, we're still um, more natural grass stadium fields than synthetic. Obviously, everybody practices on a lot of natural grass. Um, but when you start to break those numbers down even closer, I mean, it starts to get the reality would be, you know, maybe 4%. Um, the numbers start to change a little bit because not every game, you know, would switch from 100% synthetic to 100% natural. Shoes play a role. Training plays a role. I mean, it's the era of big data and the league and the players association are looking at everything, training schedules, shoes, shoe fit. Um, and so, yes, the surfaces are important. I'm trained as a natural turf guy. I love natural turf. Somehow I got slung with this synthetic turf expert thing, which is fine because nobody else wanted to pick up the mantle and I can take the slings and arrows. seems to me the guys, you know, if you're managing this thing, you ought to know something about it. Um, and, and our clientele and our students and, and uh, our stakeholders are well, out there managing these yeah. things. Well, listen, listen, pal. <laughs> you don't have to apologize to me because you know every time I call you, it's to talk about this because I do think it's our responsibility because as I've learned, we're involved, the same people who manage natural grass, I mean, Ben Polymer's probably imagine managing a natural grass system and a synthetic turf system. Yeah. So we are training these people. And I think it's been a real black hole, both of misperceptions of not knowing that they need maintenance and somehow uh, this idea that they're, you know, th that, that they're, we should never have them. And I've always thought, what I've learned from paying attention to the work that you've done to what I've seen in my own life is that when we go back to multi-use natural grass fields, Andy, mm -hmm. it, our natural grass fields are getting a lot more pressure mm -hmm. than they've ever had before. That's why the topic of multi-use natural grass fields come up. But I think it then begs the question in places where the shoulders of the season don't have good growth to sustain uh, traffic, 
do synthetic turf surfaces make sense as a swing surface to put uh, athletes on and not a primary surface where they can still get a lot of access to natural breath? I think the question is, you know, should we have some of both rather than just saying, well, let's just, because a lot of kids, like you say, in NFL, this 50-50, but I meet kids at Cornell who play on our teams who have never played on a natural grass surface. Oh, yeah. So that yeah. sort of bugs me too, pal. Sure, sure. And so each each situation is unique. I can't say a school should have synthetic. I mean, I've consulted at schools that wanted to put synthetic in. And I'm like, this is a stupid idea. You want to take that money, build two more natural grass fields, you're going to be fine. Other situations where they're fighting to keep natural grass, and I'm saying, you know, man, the amount of play, like Battery Park in New York City, right? Yeah. They, have a soccer, they have soccer fields there, like four of them. They had 22,000 kids signed up for soccer. And they're like, we can't keep natural grass on here. I'm like, hey, you can't on Route 80 either. It's surprising. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, some point, at some point, you got to say there's another option. Uh, so, so, you know, the decision is oftentimes a sociopolitical decision, and we can only help. So, yeah, sometimes it's good. I mean, here in Pennsylvania, they want to start playing baseball March 1, you know, and how are you going to do that on natural grass? And if you do, you're probably going to destroy that field and not give it any time to heal, and it's going to be a mess. And so it's so, a dynamic, so complicated hey, situation. You yeah, know, we're so not then, there to make the final decision, right, Frank? We're there to be tech support and say, right. listen, here's the ideas. Here's how you got to make your decision. We lead the decision along. Look, in the NFL, what happens is, especially when you get a major league soccer team, is you're trying to have concerts all summer too, right? And play and play soccer. And so now you're talking about, what, nine resods that summer? All right, is that what yes. it's going to take? And so, you know, that's how the decision gets made, unfortunately. Um, but I will tell you this, there are a lot of teams in the NFL that are doing feasibility studies to switch back to natural grass. And it's my hope that... Um, you know, as time goes by here, it's just going to happen organically. Um, but and that means, yeah, and that means multi-use facility. I mean, listen, you mm -hmm. know, you guys, where you've been involved, I, I think you were involved in the Vegas thing where they're rolling the field in and out. That mm -hmm. is one solution to multi-use, right? I mean, not every community is going to build something like that, but that yes. is one solution. It recognizes that if you don't limit the use of this surface, it natural grass has limitations. As you say, you can't grow grass on I-80 either. So I do think that's part of the thing that we're trying to keep the athletes safe and you got footwear decisions, but we got a pretty good idea. There's only so much traffic these fields can take. You can't put the lights on and play on them 24 seven. So let's talk a little bit about that for a second because you raised a good point. A lot of, of the rank and file places have native soil fields. They probably had a lot of use this past year. What are you telling those places? Because they're probably at the last leg where it's that, a sand base field, or a couple of sand base fields, or a synthetic field. So what are you telling those people that are on the edge with those native soils now? So the deal is, is that rarely do I suggest a sand-based field for a high school because they don't have the personnel you know, or the expertise to take care of them. And now you're going to pile a bunch of money into this natural grass field. It has a good chance of failing. There's a lot less buffer capacity in a natural grass field or in a sand-based field. And then they're going to lose it. And then the administration is going to say, my God, we just spent 
$500,000 on a natural grass field, it didn't work for 700,000, we can have a rug and we don't have to think about it anymore. So I think that's a lose-lose because if you're having trouble with your natural grass now, you're gonna have more trouble when you go to sand. Um, the sand-based fields, you know, we've done experiments. They don't necessarily, if, if you have perfect control of the water, right? On both a natural, and you never do, but on a natural and a, a sand-based field, if you have perfect control of the water, the natural soil field, it will wear better than the sand-based field. The sand-based field will actually wear out through abrasion faster. Now, why do they say a sand-based field is superior? Because how much, how many games does it take on a native soil field to ruin it? One rain game, right? And that's the thing you're preventing on the sand-based field is that one disaster game that destroys the field. But otherwise, I think you go native soil. I, I tell you the biggest thing that, that these high schools can do, and everybody's going to go, oh, man, they're going to roll their eyes. You need more help. You need labor, right? It's about labor. And you say, it's impossible. I get it. There's a union. You know, it, 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 you can't go out and get three retired guys to mow 10 hours a week each. That would be ideal, right? right? Like the golf that would, course. That would, save, that would save the school district money. But, and so everybody gives up because it seems impossible. But what is the number one limiting factor to you having better grass? It's people. And you need to keep talking about that and documenting it and say, look, I got to trailer my stuff. I got to trailer the mowers down to this other campus with this grade school. Here's how much time it takes me simply to mow, right? And so everybody's looking for a technical fix. But if you don't have the people to sit on mowers and to do with these other things, we're just talking junk. Right. Because what's the number one thing you can do? Mow more often. Right. So, so you know, how often is Beaver Stadium here in, in my background mode? Three times a week, sometimes four. Now, you know, when it's cold, middle of summer, maybe it's twice, but you mow often. How often do you mow greens? Pretty much every day. How often are you mowing your high school field? Once every 10 days. Right. Maybe once a week. Uh, and if it rains, that goes to 10 days. Yeah. The best and, thing and, you can do is mow and, twice and, a week. That's right. And even, you know, what we talk about, Andy, is, you know, let's break down a soccer field or an American football field, for example. You don't have to budget for two acres of ryegrass seed. You got to budget for gold mouths, hash marks. And again, to your point, you need a person to go back out pull the air fire over those areas, sprinkle the, a little bit of compost or top dressing or sand, whatever you're using, spread the seed on there, drag a hose and, and hit it with a spot. That kind of detail targeted at the right spots gives you the most value. But again, you know, the idea, again, you said it perfect. Ah, $700,000 I get rug, I don't have to do nothing. Let me take you back to synthetic turf for a second. You say really clearly, it's not a free lunch. What are those things? I know in the past we've talked, and I think you've got the real research now to say, if you're tracking one thing and one thing only on these synthetic surfaces, it's infill volume. Do you feel the same way about that? Oh, absolutely. It's infill depth. It's the cheapest thing you can measure. It's the easiest and it's the most important right now. Um, so, I mean, you can get, you know, I, I've seen guys do it with a, with a tired uh, tread depth gauge. You can get a, uh, we call them uh, insulation depth gauges for like 15 bucks on Amazon or 25 bucks through Mascaro, yeah. right? And so it's pretty simple. You go out and we have a nice spreadsheet on our website that can help you keep track of that to say if you're in compliance. 
Nice. Um, and hardness, you know, measuring surface hardness is important, but it's directly proportional to two things, mainly infill depth and secondarily paint buildup. So if you get a lot of paint buildup, you need to get that out of there, right? Because that'll make the field hard at that spot. But it's really, so, you know, you can buy a Clegg for $4,000. That's awesome and go out and do that. It's really not that big of an expense. But for 20, 30 bucks, you get this infill depth gauge and you know what you're starting at. You know what the target is because the company will give you that. Go out and measure that every couple of weeks. And when it gets low, you top dress on some more or you outsource it and hire somebody to top dress on some more. That's so, the number one thing you can do to keep the fields. And it, it increases the longevity of the field, right? Exactly. These things do break down from mechanical wear, but not very quickly. It's usually a combination of UV light and mechanical wear. So the more of that thing that's buried, uh, right. The less of it's exposed to UV light, it's probably going to hold up longer. And we're finding that, you know, it's going to make it softer and it's going to make the traction slightly lower. Um, and so, you know, that should benefit the players. All so right. that's listen, listen, before we got, we got about five more minutes and then we're going to ask, see if anybody, anybody listens, got any questions or anything. We'll, we'll open it up to that. But be, before we do that, you know, I think you, you were, there's two things I want to say. One is, I think you're right about the people thing. Uh, you know, my sense is that there's a lot of science sitting on the shelf of how to keep natural grass fields, whether they sand based or soil based, you know, a functioning. And you're right. It is often that one bad game that you can't hold off that. And I can tell you playing soccer here in central New York, we, we got a sand based field and we love it because we get tons. It seems like it rains every day uh, during soccer season. So you're exactly right about that. I, I just want to reiterate the BMPs are a way to have access to some of that basic science. And you're right. We had to stop somewhere. You can go to our safe sports field website, other places. You guys have them. There's lots of other resources, but these aren't complicated problems, right? The soil gets compacted and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So let's put that on the shelf before I ask for other questions, Andy, the MetLife stadium thing, brand new turf, people chirping, chirping, chirping. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But what do you make of the perception that there are, this is what's to blame versus what you and I have just talked about that infill that these are knowable things. I, there's no way I know you, you're going to let them play on that field. If it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I'm thinking of listening to this shit. And I was like, I know the guy that does this. So <laughs> you don't have to answer, but I'm asking. Well, what I will tell you is, is that that field was probably more tested prior to that game and especially right after that game than any field in the league has ever been tested um, because it, it passed FIFA's highest quality test before the game occurred. It passed all the NFL um, uh, certification processes and it was tested two and three more times after that. Uh, and what I can tell you is when we compare that field across the league, in no way was that field an outlier. That's what I thought. Right? And no field. And so look, I get it. You know, you lose three high quality players in one game early in the season. <laughs> you got to blame something, right? <laughs> because you, you know, your season just uh, started to tumble in front of your eyes. Yeah. Had it happened on natural grass, unless there were visual things that were occurring where the grass was coming up or something. I'm not sure the same, uh, the same accusation would be made. Uh, but I will tell you the league, the players association, FIFA, everybody took a very, very hard look at that field, both prior, cause it was new 
um but it was fifa you know whatever their highest i think they changed it, it used to be what two diamond mm-hmm. it passed their highest testing um and it passed all the league testing and when you compared the numbers there was nothing uh out of the norm with that field so perfect okay so how about questions carl got any questions for dr mcnitt yeah, no questions from the audience, but but I want to hit on something Andy was talking about, the labor and, and building in kind of that buffer time that it takes to mobilize equipment or to transport equipment. Uh, how important is that when you're talking to the people making decisions, building in that extra time? Because it's not just the time sitting on the mower and mowing the field. It's the time mobilizing and cleaning the equipment. How important yeah, is that time. to include? Wrench, wrench time. Oh, here's- Here's what I tell them. I preach this to my students constantly. The people that rise to the top of the turf industry are not necessarily the best grass growers. They're the best communicators because they can communicate to the administration that holds the purse strings, their needs. They can get the funding and the people to accomplish the job, right? So what to your point, Carl, um, yeah, you need to document all of this. Like, look, this is the man hours it takes us to load this trailer, to move it to the elementary school, to mow you know, and then, uh, and come back, et cetera. All that needs to be documented because these guys understand numbers, you know, you can't expect them to come down there and, you know, figure out whatever, how to uh, change the pressure plate and your throw out bearings on your clutch, right? right. They don't know that. Uh, they're not going to know anything about that. They'll be lucky if they know what PTO stands for, right? So it's not their job. It's not their job to, to, know your job it's your job to talk their language right so you must be able to talk their language and their language is numbers charts projections right so you need to know down to the penny how much it costs you to trailer that stuff to mow over there etc so that you can make the argument now one of the things dave minner taught me that i love is um you have limited resources you don't have enough people you don't have enough resources Don't spread those resources evenly across all your campuses. Steal from places, short places, and create one prime field. Because if you don't, everything is average. And the administration is going to say, if we give this guy another guy or two and some more uh, maintenance budget, everything's just going to be a little more average, right? But if you can show them what's possible, here's one field, look what I can do, right? And even if you're stealing from the other fields. Now they know the potential, but two, and the most important thing that I found when I implemented Minner's strategy is you suddenly have advocates on your point because the people who aren't playing on that field are saying, why does the coaches, why doesn't my field look like that? What do you need? More people, more people. Now all the coaches are going to the administration saying, get that guy some more people. And so that's, I think, uh, one strategy that's worked pretty well. I'm, I'm telling you, the whole year, we won't get as many one-liners as we got from Andy today, Carl. I am telling you. <laughs> Andy, what a joy to have you. Uh, I, I hope we got, I got a feeling we got to talk about exactly what you wanted to talk about. Not exactly, uh, but we got a little bit of it in there. So that's good. It's hey, so you know, great. I don't know about this lighting. You guys need to do something about this. It's looking like I'm all puffy under here. And I don't think we'll, we'll blur it out. We'll blur it out in editing. Yeah, you're gonna be a, you're gonna be a that. you're gonna be a regular. We're gonna get you all set up. Don't you worry. Most people are watching on news channel three tomorrow. They, they or listening oh, to the podcast. Wonderful. Send, yeah, send me better lights, Carl. <laughs> we'll we'll send you better lights. Thanks for Stage taking the time. Makeup, uh, for our Good budget makeup. next year. We'll, we'll budget for uh, some makeup, but uh Anyway, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, Fastest 30 minutes in turf. We're always keeping it to 30 minutes. Again, thanks everyone for joining. 
We'll see you guys Thanks, next Frank. week. Thank you, Thanks, Andy. Andy. Love you, brother. Take care of yourself. Love you too. Take it easy. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.